This is chapter 188 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich, and this week we chat about the call of creative work and its flip side, Writer's Agony, with debut author Joni Elliott. Then we stroll down memory lane and give millennials a break with author Alyssa Friedland. Writing is hard. Let's just say there's a reason I like to talk to people who write books instead of actually writing them myself. But all kinds of writers, from those just starting out to the already published, will totally relate with the title character in The Audacity of Sarah Grayson. Sarah's mom is a global best-selling writer who thinks the greeting card writer is capable of following in her footsteps if only she would just believe a little bit more in herself. So she goes and does something no one was expecting. Author Joni Elliott picks up the story from there. Three weeks after the death of her mother, who's this iconic, world-famous suspense novelist, Sarah learns that her mother's dying wish is for her to write the final book in her best-selling series. And Sarah is just horrified that her mother would put her in this kind of situation because Sarah is just barely hanging onto life by her fingernails. She's lived alone with her dog Gatsby ever since her husband walked out on her with their pro double waffle maker and her last shred of confidence. And she cannot fathom writing a book for 30 million fans. She's barely hanging on to life, like I said. Her last week's big win was just finding matching shoes, resetting the microwave clock. And she initially just dismisses the idea. She says she she has one sister who's a big support in her life. And she tells her sister, there's just no way I can do this. Even if mom thinks I can, there's no way I can do it. Um, But through a series of some events, uh, Sarah boldly takes on this situation, this book. Um, and she's got an impossible deadline. She has to she has to take on the same contractual ob- obligations that her mother had. So she's got seven months left to write this book. And she's got a publisher who doesn't want her to write the book. The publisher has to agree to take on this, this author because her mother had it in her contract. Um, but the publisher would love for Sarah to quit. So, so the publisher can, can get on a, a real writer who, who has more experience than Sarah does. And so anyway, as Sarah steps into her mother's shoes, she is stumbling onto family secrets that she had no idea about. And these are secrets that really threaten her mother's legacy and this book that Sarah's trying to create. So it's really a journey of self-discovery, things about herself and things about her family. And I hope readers will love uh, taking this journey along with Sarah Grayson. Now, I've talked to a lot of writers, and I know seven months is not an easy uh, task. <laughs> no, absolutely not. She's got some notes left from her mother, and she's at least got characters that are created for her. So that's that's some help. But with her total lack of self confidence, it's just this really incredible gargantuan task. It's something that's kind of rooted in reality because there have been in recent years where a prominent author dies and, and the family estate decides they want the series or, or the author's books to continue and they find somebody to keep writing it. And yeah. I think, you know, I think writers everywhere, whether they're established or just starting out, would find that a really, to be a really daunting task. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, that is, it is rooted in reality. Um, Robert Jordan, for example, his Wheel of Time series, he had passed away and his widow, and who was also his his editor, uh, she chose a Brandon Sanderson, who just out of the blue got a call to finish his series. 
um, which he said was just, he said he, it was, he felt like it was winning the lottery that he didn't even buy a ticket to. Um, but he was already established author. And uh, so it was, he was really thrilled to do it, even though he said he almost wanted to, he almost wanted to say no, he said, even though he was already an established author. So, yeah. Some of the, my favorite scenes in the book are, are Sarah just not accepting that her mom didn't already write it and was just hiding it because she wanted this to be motivation for her. So those scenes where she's like constantly like she grasps at any straw to think that this book has got to be written somewhere, right? (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. She's certain. No, my mother would not do this to me. It's got to be written somewhere. This is just some kind of like exercise in trying to make me write again. Because her mother, her mother really believes that Sarah has this in her because Sarah at one point wanted to be an author, you know, and 10 years earlier, she had written a book that had just kind of been ripped apart. So along with her confidence in writing. Do you think sometimes people who feel that way just need to get out of their own way? I think that almost always we need to get out of our own way, whether it's writing a book or doing anything that in our lives takes courage, which is any of our our big moves, our big steps, our dreams. You know, it's almost always we we meet this resistance, um, whether it's a small task like I want to I want to lose weight or I want to get a new job or I want any any of those small moves from the big moves of I want to become a doctor. Um, I think we are always facing this voice in the back of our heads that um, challenges that, and so I I think. I felt as I was in this journey of writing this book, I was facing that own self-doubt. And so I think there's a lot here that speaks to um, having to to face up to those self-doubts and having to do those small daily moves that helps us get there. Um, Because it really is the gradual and then the sudden. That's how we achieve anything big is, is showing up to those small daily things that helps us get there. There's a lot of writing advice uh, woven into your narrative. And I know you teach writing. Are you giving mm-hmm. readers a free lesson? <laughs> well, I know that I was learning lessons along the way. Um, you know, and I have to tell you that this, there's a lot in here that with for Sarah that's mirroring some of my own experience. When I started writing this book, I was teaching writing at the University of Maryland, and I thought, if I keep if I keep teaching writing instead of writing, I am never going to fulfill this dream of writing and publishing a book. So I actually, at that time, said, I'm going to give myself two years. I'm going to take this leap of faith, and I'm going to leave my job and try writing this book. And so I left my job, and I began writing this process. This I began this writing journey, and I have to tell you that it went from bad to worse to agonizing. And in four months, I had nothing. And I thought this, maybe I've made a mistake. Um, This is, I've got, I had all these starts and stops. And I was, (laughs) I started instead of writing, I ended up, you know, organizing my kitchen pantries and cleaning out the garage and doing all those things, you know, that you, you do when writing is going bad. And so you start procrastinating and becoming distracted. And so one, one morning I was sitting thinking, this is, what have I done? And I thought, well, at least nobody is waiting for this book. Nobody even cares if, if I write this. You know, what would it be like if there were actually fans waiting for me or, or thousands of people or millions of fans of people waiting, not even fans, what if they're just people waiting for me? And I imagined suddenly 
a woman who was in far worse writing agony than I was? What if there was this person who had all these people waiting for her? And suddenly I imagined this person who had the weight of the world on her writing shoulders. You know, who was she? And why did she have all these people waiting for her to write this book? And that's the day that Sarah Grayson was born. <laughs> she was really born out of my writing angst. And so that's when I started asking questions. I I figured out pretty quickly that she was a woman whose mother had, had gifted her this book as her dying wish. And after that, that's when the story came to me and things really started moving forward. So, um, so yes, there are there are definitely writing lessons in this book, and but they were writing lessons that I needed. Um, for for me, I, at the time, I wasn't even I was teaching the you know freshman freshman English class that all the write, all the freshman English students had to take. It wasn't even creative writing, and so this this deep dive into the craft of fiction writing I was doing with Sarah Grayson. I mean, I'd had a I, my master's program. I studied studied creative writing, but. I was taking a deep dive with Sarah Grayson and and taking the journey with her in so many ways. So I guess I my biggest question after that story is, is the key to just let your mind wander and you'll get out of the funk on your own? Or do you knuckle down and just write whatever ideas come to mind? Well, I think there there's a process initially of of some wandering. But once you've got the idea and you have the story, I think you do have to discipline yourself. And and for me, I had to learn to protect my time and stop going to the container store and cleaning out my kitchen pantry. And uh, and I did. I had to learn when I wasn't being productive at all. Um, there was a moment when I had to say, okay, what, what do I need to do here? And I remember meditating and thinking on this because I, I needed to be more productive. And three words came to mind and they were protect your time and I, I realized I had to protect the time that I had like I would my, my teaching job. And that meant that I had to p- create a space where, where a space where that I wrote in, a specific time that was my writing time, and to not give it away and to help my family protect that time as well. You know, because if, it's, if I'm leaving for a job or if I've got office hours at, at, at the university um, and, and classes that I'm teaching – my family's not going to interrupt that time, and I'm not going to interrupt that time. And, you know, but I, this was a new experience being an actual writer. I was willing to, to give that away and not protect it. And so I, I had to start giving myself time, time, the moment that I would need to be at my computer and, and that my family wouldn't interrupt me. And, and once I learned how to structure that, you know, so for me as a writer, I had to I had to really structure it all just like I would a regular job. This is the time I'm going to sit there at the time I'm going to, you know, I can be done by this time and and protect that and use that. And once I started doing that and making that a real routine, um, then I became so much more productive as a writer. And, and so that became part of my writing process as well. I think that's something a lot of people probably identify with after this past year in creating work from home mm-hmm. schedules. So they, I think they oh, totally yeah. get that. Yeah. So you've got the word audacity in the title. It's very easy to look up in the dictionary what it means, but what does it mean to you? To me, it's, it's being bold and it's being courageous. And I think that anytime we make some courageous steps doing something that's important to us, it requires those bold and courageous moves. And, you know, there's this quote by Mary Oliver that 
just means a lot to me. It, she says, the most regretful people on earth are those who felt the call to creative work and gave it neither power nor time. And I, I feel like that that sums up Sarah Grayson so much. There's also this other quote I have just, just before the book begins by the poet uh, Joy Harjo. She's the National Poet Laureate, and she says, I could hear my abandoned dreams making a racket in my soul. And so when we feel the call to creative work and we give it neither power nor time, um, we, we, become a re- we become regretful whether we realize it or not. And my, my real feeling is that all of us, all of us feel a call to something creative in our lives. And, and what that creativity looks like is different for all of us. Um, I feel like there's a reason that, that there are all these adult coloring books out there. <laughs> um, I think it taps into some need to create. And so, again, by creativity, I'm, I'm not meaning that all of us dabbles in, in something that's obviously creative, like writing or painting or dancing or something like that. But I, I think there is this need to create, and that takes courage because being – Answering the creative call, it's so vulnerable. It, it, it is a vulnerable position, um, for example, to, to write a book and to put yourself out there in, in the world. It's, it's exposure um, of, of ourselves, of some of our most, the most vulnerable parts of ourselves. And so audacity, um, that speaks of boldness and courage and the risk of exposure and and so for me um you know i'm i'm risking that um but doing it anyway and so for all of us when we're willing to do that um i think we can we we're more alive it's hard but i think we become a better version of ourselves and a more alive version of ourselves i think there's a rebirth when we're willing to do that so do you feel the need to create a sequel Absolutely, I do. <laughs> so I, I've um, started another book. The, the book that I, you know, this book, when I was initially getting rejections, I thought, well, I probably better not start the sequel next in case this one doesn't sell, because it'd be hard to sell a sequel if the first book hasn't sold. So the next book I started is a separate book, but I've already sketched out um, the next book in the Sarah Grayson world. So yeah, I want to keep writing. And that's been a beautiful experience for me. So out of my agony, when the first when the first part of my writing was not going well, I have learned how to make writing a joyful experience for me. It's still hard. Writing writing is a challenging a challenging uh, act, but I've learned how to make it um, a joyful one. Well, I hope readers go and pick up your book, The Audacity of Sarah Grayson. And if anything, after listening to this conversation, hopefully they don't give up if they've hit that wall in their own writing and have been distracted with organizing the garage. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you so much. Jenny Elliott, thank you for all your time today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Whenever families gather together, squabbling usually ensues. But what if the fate of the long-running family business hangs in the balance and you've got multiple generations who all want to say in what the future brings? Well, then you can expect extra drama sepia-toned memories, and more than a few laughs. 
Last Summer at the Golden Hotel delivers all that, plus a picturesque Catskill setting. I had the pleasure of chatting with author Alyssa Friedland. When most people think of the Catskills, I think the first thing that comes to mind is dirty dancing. What's your connection to this book setting? So I did go there as a child about probably three or four times with my family. Uh, It was sort of already at the demise of of these hotels being like the incredible glamorous resorts they were at the time of dirty dancing and what's depicted in the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. But my mom went every single summer of her childhood to a bungalow colony and really was a defining part of her life. She loved it and spoke so fondly of her summers up there. This book really is going to be a trip down memory lane for anyone who, like your mom, summered up there in what was called the Borscht Belt, if people aren't familiar about it before they jump into this book. Yes, and the feedback has been great. Although I have to say, while it's been wonderful and rewarding to hear from people who were familiar with the Catskills and spent time there, my book's been out now for a while. It came out the beginning of May with Book of the Month Club did an early release, and then it came out May 18th. So it's already been out in the world for a while. And the feedback I get from people from all across the country who say, wow, I the only thing I ever knew about the Catskills was from Dirty Dancing. <laughs> and I learned so much. Like, thank you for introducing me to this part of American history that I knew nothing about. I guess I take it for granted a little bit because growing up in the New York area, it's just always something you heard about. Like, I know my mom remembers going a couple of summers up there. There was like one Italian resort that she remembers that all the Italians went to. And that's that's where she spent a couple of summers. And yes, there's um, like Villa Roma. That mm-hmm, was exactly. It. That was it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I did some research, of course, for the book. So I'm familiar with Villa Roma. Before we get into your research, though, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the story itself? Absolutely. So the book focuses on the Golden Hotel, which is a hotel very much like Kellerman's and Dirty Dancing and the Steiner Resort in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, if anybody watched season two like I did. Uh, And for the real life resorts that it's based on, those would be Grossinger's, the Concord Kutcher's. These were the center of social life for, you know, a certain group of people from the New York area and families would go, especially women and children would go and decamp there for the entire summer and husbands would drive up on the weekends and sit in hours of traffic to get there and everything happened there. Matches were made, jobs were secured. I mean, back then the waiters were law students and medical students and they were getting stock tips from the people they served and huge social life there and incredible entertainers performed and athletes came to train for the Olympics. So we're talking 50s, 60s, into the 70s. These resorts were incredible, but they they declined over time. And I was up there in the 90s and you could see the writing on the wall that these hotels were losing their luster. And in my book, The Golden Hotel, it's set in present times. It's the last hotel standing in the area you know, decades earlier, there were thousands. There were thousands of hotels and bungalow colonies. And now there are none left, which is really sad. But it's fiction. So in my novel, The Golden Hotel is the last man standing. It's co-owned by two families, the Goldmans and the Weingolds. And they've been best friends and business partners for 60 years. And a casino developer comes along and makes a tempting offer to buy the hotel, take it off their hands. He wants to demolish the buildings and just use the land and build a casino on the site. Well, there's now three generations of both of these families that own the resort, and they convene on the property for a week in June. 
to decide what to do. Should they try to save the hotel and modernize it, or should they just cut their losses and sell to the casino developer? And as you can imagine, everybody has a very different opinion about what should happen. I really got a kick out of the generational conflicts. And as a millennial, I want to thank you for showing that we are capable of some nostalgia. Yes. Well, that was important to me. I think everyone is really mean to millennials. And I, I guess I'm sensitive to it because I'm the oldest millennial. Like me too. My birthday, I was born in 1981. I've looked it up. I am officially the oldest millennial. and But I really don't identify with the millennials. I think because of like where I am with my stage of life, I'm, I'm more, you know, the generation that preceded millennials, but they get such a tough <laughs> break. And I wanted to show not only that millennials are capable of nostalgia and that they don't only live in the moment or live on Snapchat, but like they can be very clever. It's just that their idea of what makes a successful business and their idea of hard work looks very different than it did to their grandparents, who were all about FaceTime in the office and a traditional career path. And these days, we all know that there are millennials and Gen Zers making a ton of money from their basements. To say for the older generation, I mean, they're a little bit stuck in their ways. Yes, 100%. But I also wanted to show them capable of change, too, and not to have their heads completely buried in the sand. That yes, of course, they are wedded to tradition, and not only because they believe it was a better way of being, but because they built the hotel from the ground up. They have a story about every piece of plywood and every carpet, and it's very meaningful to them. And I think it's very different in a family business the founders will always feel better, not even better, feel more deeply attached, I should say. It should be, it's a different connection to the business if you're the founder than if you're the one who inherits it. And I think it's like a very timeless tale of a child inheriting a business and then immediately, you know, cutting out saying, oh, all right, great. I can finally modernize it. Let me get rid of all this stuff my father or mother used to do. It's ridiculous. No one wants to do that anymore and come in with all their amazing ideas. And it's it can be heart-wrenching for the older generation. And the younger ideas aren't always that, you know, sometimes there's a proven track record for a reason. So generational conflict is a huge theme in this book. And I had a lot of fun exploring it. That's a lot of fun to read it. I, I can tell readers that. We teased your research at the top of this interview, and I know you got to know the woman whose family ran Grossinger's, the resort that inspired Dirty Dancing. How did you happen to meet her? I'm very lucky. She was doing Pilates at the same place that I do Pilates on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. And I had the same session time as her for a couple of years. I didn't know who she was, much older than me. And she was just like a lovely older woman that had a private session, always came with a younger woman accompanying her. I thought it was an aide. It turned out to be one of her grandchildren. And then she didn't come one time. And I asked my teacher, oh, you know, where's that older woman who's always here. And she's like, oh, Bunny, you know, Bunny is not feeling well. We're doing the sessions in her house now. She's like, do you know who that is? And I I didn't know who it was. And she's like, that's Bunny Grossinger. Have you ever heard of Grossinger's? It was this. And I cut her off. I said, have I heard of Grossinger's? I'm writing a novel that takes place in the Catskills about a hotel just like Grossinger's. Well, I mean, I couldn't believe it. And I had been next to this woman for two years and had no idea. So I was connected to her through my teacher, and she welcomed me to her apartment a number of times. I got to know some of her grandchildren. 
She's an amazing, amazing woman with, as you can imagine, a lot of stories to tell. And she's sharp as a tack. So she was like a so did huge any, resource for me. Did any of those stories she told you end up in the book somehow? Well, she ended up giving me an unpublished memoir that one of her cousins had written. And I wouldn't say that I borrowed any of those stories specifically, but they were just overall inspiration because she wrote, this cousin wrote very candidly about the friction in the family. You know, this cousin felt pushed out. This, you know, this sibling was never given a chance to shine or taken leadership position. Jenny Grossinger, who was the public face of the hotel, like she, she was a tough personality and she ran, you know, she ran the place with an iron fist and I have a character, you know, also sort of like a very public face and takes a lot of pride in, you know, being the face of the hotel. And so I got, you know, just overall inspiration, I would say, and also just confirmation that the types of conflicts that I imagined happened at a place at a family business, a family-owned resort, that I was not wrong. And, you know, reading her, this memoir, not Bunny's memoir, but her cousin's memoir, confirmed that these skirmishes and conflicts did, in fact, happen. Has Bunny had a chance to read your book? I hope so. I dropped off an early copy for her. I'm in touch with her grandson often. I don't know if she's like, I mean, she's without, I, I'm not entirely sure of her exact age, but she's, she'll be a century soon. And so I don't, I'm not sure how up to it she is, but I know she was really excited to get it when it was dropped off. So writing a book like this and you having your own memories of what it was like to stay in these places, what was it like for you to to be able to write this kind of book? I just, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I sounds cheesy, but I had so much fun, like, quote, moving into the hotel for the time it took me to write the book and to picture it in my head. And I have a sort of a sense of the layout, like for whatever reason, the, the dining room was always off to the left in my head. I don't know why this is a made up <laughs> hotel. And yet I knew what the lobby looked like. And I, I just knew you had to make a left to get into the dining room. I don't know why, but that's just how it came to me in my head and the swimming pool and the grounds and the trees. I really like could feel them. And I was sad to be done writing it because I had to check out, so to speak. <laughs> Well, it's kind of sad to me reading it to think that these types of places don't really exist anymore. Yeah, it is. It is sad. I mean, maybe there'll be a resurgence. I think the Catskills are coming back in a way, but they're coming back differently. It's a it's definitely a more hipster vibe up there now. It's less like, you know, sit around and, you know, play pinochle. But there it's definitely more, you know, the food, you can really see the difference in the food because the food is like heavy and fattening and unlimited. And now it's like much more healthy vegan and vegetarian offerings. It's a whole different type of cuisine that's served up there. But that's probably a good thing because we don't need to give people heart attacks. (laughs) Well, you know, with a lot of people looking to travel again now post pandemic, people still want to stay local. You might start a resurgence with your book. People might start heading up there to see if they can, like, glimpse into the past or whatever. I mean, left. I would. I hope so. I mean, I, I when I read all the comments, like they always say, oh, we wish, you know, we could get to the Catskills. Like, if people are like, I finished the book, I have to get to the Catskills immediately, which I think is so nice because I didn't even present, like, the most unbelievable view of it in the sense that, like, it's also, it's not presented as, like, oh my gosh, this is the most beautiful place you'll ever see in your life, like a waterfall in Hawaii, you know, but 
I guess there's just like, I guess I was able to describe sort of a magical feeling in the air that people want to. So it's not about getting to see this particular mountain or getting to visit this particular museum. It's just like it's an atmospheric thing, I guess. Besides planning a trip to upstate New York, what do you want readers to take away? I think that they should take the time to look back at where they came from and look ahead at where they're going and just see their place in the timeline of history because to just become completely absorbed in the exact moment and not take the time to look back and not think about where you're headed can be, you know, just you you could be missing out. You can really inform your life better and make better choices. If you, if you pause and look at where you came from, take the time to listen to your parents and your grandparents stories. And then if you have children or grandchildren that you don't just dismiss what they're into, but maybe take the time to say, Hey, that's actually pretty cool. Like I have a son who's always on video games and it kind of annoys me. And I think, Oh, he's just wasting his life. I was so much better when I was that age. I just had my nose in a book and I was reading, you know, I took the time the other day he showed me and he had actually created something unbelievable using computer coding and made his own avatar. And it was like, actually, that's incredibly creative what he's doing. So I think, and I think writing the book and spending all this time talking about the difference between generations is what made me pause and take a look at what he was doing and see like, actually, I was about to dismiss this, but I shouldn't because there's like a lot of uh, creativity here. It's just a different kind of creativity that I'm used to. So many family squabbles would be avoided if we all took your advice. I hope so. I think so. (laughs) Although some amount of squabbling is healthy, right? Always. Always. I think so. We've been talking with Alyssa Friedland. The book is Last Summer at the Golden Hotel. Thank you for your time this weekend. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we dive into a modern-day love story that's an homage to Romeo and Juliet with a lesser body count, I promise. Until then, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. You never know where we're going to pop up. I'm Lisa Cherkovich. 